Okay, welcome back, guys. Um, second, uh, second type of shadow we're going to do. Uh, we started out last week with uh, David and Goliath. We also went in and spent the first part of the video uh, breaking down uh, how Jesus himself uh, mentioned and uh, began to give us this thought, this idea of the Old Testament being about him and that he's in it. Uh, and we had discussed uh, how David and Goliath, this uh, very popular story, uh, has uh, been misconstrued, it's been mistaught, um, uh, it has been uh, just, it's been done injustice. Uh, we've been told uh, by preachers across the country that uh, you're David, you're right in the middle of it. Uh, and, and we have popular ones, very uh, well known on social media, and, and uh, you're David, you've got these giants in front of you, and and it, it's not about that at all. Uh, it's about Christ. It's, we talked about that this is pointing to Jesus, and if you didn't get a chance to see the first video, go back and watch David and Goliath. It's uh, it's amazing. And, and the title of this series we, we're doing uh, is called There's More to the Story. That's because a lot of these stories, a lot of these individuals, a lot of these things that we grew up listening to are being taught the very surface level. And um, we use them as antidotes for our life and and we miss the bigger point. And the bigger point is that there is more to those stories. And when you start to dig down into uh, the, the depths of these stories and the heart of these stories and the true intention of these stories, they point to Jesus. And uh, Jesus is in the Old Testament. Um, and we're going to continue with a, a very famous um, individual. Um, and I also believe that, uh, and I, I don't believe it, I, I, I know this because I was listening to a preacher not too long ago um, give a sermon on this guy and it just missed the mark in my opinion um, because it was very centered around all the people in the church were pointing to this character. They, you, could, you could insert yourself into this guy's story um, and that, that person is Joseph. Um, we pick up the story in Genesis 37. Joseph is you know, known for his, his coat of many colors. Um, we also know by his, his dream or his vision that he had. Um, and this individual that, that was preaching this message, he was uh, going on to say that, um, yeah, yes, that you and I will have these God-sized visions, and we'll know that they're God-sized visions because of how big they are. And uh, if God doesn't give you a vision that's too big, uh, you know, it's going to be so big that without Him you'll fail. And it only God gives big visions, and there's always more, and there's something better always for your life. And and God will give you these visions, and and your words release these visions. And uh, you know, in this message, He also said. That just like Joseph's brothers uh, hated him and were mad because he uh, told him this dream that you will have uh, haters come against you. You'll have people come against you because of your God-sized dream. And, and, and once we get to the end of this, uh, hopefully you'll see that this is not what this story is intending. Um, Joseph is type and shadow pointing to Jesus. It is, it's, it's amazing how many similarities there are. And, and that's what I want to walk through today is... There is more to this story of Joseph than, than his coat, but that coat is going to come in to, to um, be more than what we've made it. There's some amazing details in what happened to his coat, and, and um, we won't get into it right now, save that as we progress into the story. 
Um, but I hope you'll go along with me on this and, and as we uh, follow the account of Joseph and his life. And we know a lot about Joseph uh, kind of on the surface. We know that he was sold by his brothers and, and went to be in the house of Potiphar in Egypt. And then he was in charge of all the grain um, at the very end and um, when there was a famine in the land. But there is more to this story and it is... Uh, pointing to Jesus, and I want to walk through this today, uh, if we can. So we'll find, uh, we'll pick up in here, we'll find ourselves in the 37th chapter in um, of the book of Genesis, and this is where we're going to be. Um, this is where we're going to begin to pick up the story of Joseph. Joseph is going to be uh, 17 years old when this story takes place. So we'll start at the start of chapter 37, and we won't get too uh, far into the chapter. We'll start uh, in verse 1 and go down to verse 2 and you'll see something pretty amazing here. And if you listen to the, the first uh, story we did, the first message we did on David, you'll see one of the similarities in David that pointed to Christ. We see here as Joseph is pointing to Christ. And I'll read the first two verses and then I'll comment on it. It says, Now Jacob lived in the land where his father had sojourned in the land of Canaan. These are the records of the generations of Jacob. So this is Jacob's son. Joseph, when 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers while he was still a youth. Well, there's the first thing we see is that he was a shepherd. And we know that David was a shepherd. And we know that Joseph here is a shepherd. And we know that Jesus is referred to as the good shepherd and the great shepherd and the chief shepherd. He is the good shepherd and we don't want, we, we, we lack nothing. He's also the great shepherd that is uh, mentioned in, um, or the chief shepherd that's mentioned in 1 Peter 5. And then we know that he's the good shepherd who lays his life down for the sheep. And, and we know that uh, in the story of David that the lion had come and, and had tried to attack the sheep uh, of David, but he fought them off. He, he, he would have even laid his life down for them. Uh, and then we point to one greater than David, a greater shepherd who actually did lay his life down for the sheep and who, uh, who continues to guard his sheep from the attack of the enemy who's referred to as a lion. So we see that David was a shepherd. We see that Joseph is a shepherd. And it is pointing to a greater shepherd, which is Jesus, the one who uh, knows his sheep, the one who calls his sheep, the one who sh uh, the sheep hear his voice, they come to him, the one who laid his life down for the sheep, who's the, the door to the sheep. Um, we know that he's also the shepherd that uh, wraps us in his arms, and once we're in his arms, that, that nothing and no one will take us from his arms, and he gives the sheep eternal life. And so we don't want to overlook that amazing thing that, that Joseph is a shepherd and Jesus is a shepherd. And in verse 3 it says, Now Israel, or, or Jacob, loved Joseph more than all of his sons because he was a son of, uh, of his old age and he made him a, a very colored tunic. And it says his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all the brothers, so they hated him more and could not speak to him on friendly terms. Then Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. So we see a couple things here that begins to point to, to Christ, is that, that, that Jacob was the father. It was Israel, right? And, and Jacob loved the son. He loved him more. And, and we know that this speaks to that the father, God the father, loved the son. And, and even in John 10, he tells us that the reason that the father loves him is because he lays his life down for the sheep. 
And we see the approval of the Father to the Son in the baptism of Jesus. When In this beautiful harmony of the Trinity, you see God the Father in heaven speaking down, saying, This is my beloved Son, who I'm well pleased. And then you have the Holy Spirit descending on him in the form of dove. And you see the approval of the Father. This is my Son, whom I'm well pleased. And, and the Father loves me because I lay my life down for the sheep, is what John 10 says. So we see that, that Jacob loved Joseph. He, he loved him. Um, and then we see that Joseph has this dream that he would be ahead over his brothers. He would, he would be ruling over his brothers. And that brought hatred among them. But we're also going to find out that, that Joseph was sent to his brothers by the father. And, and we see that as the Father sends the Son to pay the price and redeem um, that the church and the all believers, we see that Joseph is being sent by the Father to the brothers. And, and, and we know that Jesus says in John 1 that he comes into his own and his own received him not. And as Joseph's brothers hated him because he was loved by the Father more, but also because of this dream that he would told them about how he would be ruling over them, they hated him all the more. And, and we see this in the story of Jesus all throughout his account of his earthly ministry, that, that Jesus claimed to be the Son of God, claimed to be God, claimed to be deity, claimed to, to profess to be the Messiah, and they, they hated him because of that. And we see that the, 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 the religious people of the time were the ones who hated him the most. You know, it says he came into his own, the Jewish people, and his own received him not. They, they hated him because of his claim of, uh, of rule and his claim of being God and his claim um, that he was the one who was prophesied in the Old Testament. You, you know, you look at this and you see that the people that hated him the most were the quote-unquote religious in, in, in the Bible. You know, the example goes like this and talked about it is when you were in school and if you took a test and it didn't come back well, like I said, there's 30 people in the class and 29 have gotten 70s. And you think, man, the teacher's going grade to grade on a curve. And here comes the last student and they get a 99. Well, I will tell you this, you're probably not going to take this one student out and, and buy him pizza because they've just broken the curve. They just ruined the curve. And, and, and you see how you fared and you, you compare yourself up against everybody else. You're like, oh, 29 people got 70s. That's great. But the teacher breaks the curve because this one person has set the standard, has excelled, has set the, the expectation and the standard of what it should be. This is what Jesus did. All the religious people thought they were righteous and they were holy and they were good until he came on the scene. And we see this with the Pharisees. They would be looked at as some of the righteous people amongst the, the people they were around. But when Jesus came and the, the standard was put in front of them, they hated him all the more. He is claiming to be God and he's calling them out on their hypocrisy and they don't like it. They hate him. And, and you see this theme that they hated him because of his claims and his teachings. We see this with Paul. As Paul is living under the, the law and he's claiming all the things that he's done under the law. You know, he's born of this tribe and he's kept the law here and he's advancing beyond people his age. And he thought that he was 
righteous and he thought he was great until he came in contact with the true standard, which was Christ. And then he realized that he's nothing. And his whole life now is chasing after the one true standard of perfection, which is God. They hated Jesus. They absolutely hate, hated him because of his stance. And we see this even when he is being brought before his uh, trial after his arrest. He tells them, my kingdom's not of this world, or if they were, my, my followers would, would go to fight for me. But my kingdom is not here. Uh, it's above. It's a heavenly kingdom. And they knew that he was claiming to be God. They hated him. When he would do miracles, they hated him. After Lazarus was raised from the grave, they, they plotted to kill him. They hated Jesus because of his claims and because of who he was. He was sent by the Father, and they hated him. And we see this here with Joseph, that he's sent by the father, a shepherd sent by the father, and the brothers hate him all the more because of this dream that he would reign over them, and he'd be ruler over them. And, and they hated it so much that they plotted to kill him. And, and we have, um, let, me go, let me go back and actually mention one more thing, that it said that not only did he came into his own representing the Jews and his, his own received him not, and we see here that the brothers hated Joseph, but there's a passage in John 7, I think it's verse 5, and it said that even Jesus' brothers didn't believe him. So you, you see this hatred, you see this, um, this envy, this jealousy, uh, whatever it may be uh, of Joseph because of what he is, what he's claiming to be, what's going to happen, they hate him. And they plot to kill him. Um, and it doesn't take us very far along to see the correlation there. Not only did they hate Jesus, did he was the shepherd that would come. He was loved by the Father. He was sent in with this message that, that he was the only way. He was going to be the one who would reign and rule forever. Just like Joseph was sent in by his father as a shepherd to tell of this reign and that he would be over them. And they hated him and they tried to kill him. The same thing. These stories are parallel in each other. And we see that multiple times throughout the Bible that Jesus has a plot against him. Um, that they are trying to kill him. Uh, let me just read one here real quick in Matthew 12. Matthew 12, verse 8. And we see these stories paralleling right off the bat because these are types, they're shadows, they're pointing to Jesus. Let's do 8 through 14. Talking about the Sabbath. And we'll have a, a video later about how Jesus fulfilled the Sabbath. The Sabbath was a type and a shadow pointing to Christ. It says, For the, the Son of the Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Departing from there, he went into the synagogue, and, and there was uh, those who, man who had a withered hand. And they questioned Jesus, asking, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So they might accuse him. And he said to them, What man is there among you who has a sheep, and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath? Will he not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable, then, is a man than a sheep? So then, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath? Then he said Son, to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and it was restored to normal like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him as how they might destroy him. He came. He goes against their law, the tradition of what they think. He miraculously does something, and they plot to kill him. And we see this in multiple places. In John chapter 5, there's an interesting story here that happens. Um, Jesus is claiming equality with God. And I want to read this really quick because it goes into why they wanted to kill him. 
you're, you're going to see that they, they want to kill him all the time because of who he says he is. And we will find that text, and let's see where we want to go with it here. I didn't have this one written down, but I'm going to find it. It came to my mind here. Okay, here we go. John chapter 5, verse, um, he heals this guy at Bethsaida, uh, and, and he says this, verse 16, For this reason the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. He was healing. But he answered them, my father is working until now, and I myself am working. Now, this is, a subtle, this is a subtle sentence, and it doesn't seem like much on the surface. But what Jesus has just said here is that he is God. Because the, the, the Jews had this belief that only, the only person that could do any work on the Sabbath was God. Because he was running the universe. He was orchestrating everything that would come to pass. He was... He was working to, to, to keep the universe and everything that came from him going. He, he was working to do that. That was the work that was to be done on the Sabbath. And Jesus says, my father is working until now, but then he steps it up. And he says, I myself am working. In that one sentence, he's claiming deity. He's saying, listen, you guys think, you know that you think that only God works on the Sabbath. I work on the Sabbath. And look what the response is. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. There's the plot. He comes in and declares that he is the Son of God. He's declaiming deity. He is claiming this, this reign and this, this, uh, this level of, of awe that he is in being God. He's claiming this, and they absolutely despise him for it, and they seek to kill him. Because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. You see, Joseph had this dream. He's like, I'm going to be in charge of this. You guys are going to come bow down to me. And they hated him. And Jesus is claiming deity. He's claiming this authority. He's claiming this, this, this rule and reign. And they hate him for it. And just like the brothers were plotting to kill Joseph... We still see that many, many times throughout the Gospels, the story is the same. And they tried to, to, to kill Jesus. They plotted to kill Jesus. And just for note that they could not kill Jesus at that time because his hour had not come. The, the time, the hour, was planned, decreed from the foundation of the world. His hour hasn't come, so they were never going to be able to do that. And, and we see a few more places here. Um, In John 8, same thing. John 8, he is saying before uh, Abraham was, I am. Uh, he, he's claiming to be Yahweh. He's claiming to be God. And we, we see this um, in verse 24 of John 8. He says, therefore I say to you that you will die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sin. And, and that may not seem like anything and that may not seem like much but what has happened here is that Jesus has just declared that he is Yahweh because when Moses is with God in the burning bush in Exodus 3 and Moses wants to know who he is supposed to say sent him and Jesus God is referencing here he says I am I tell him I am sent me that's where we get the name Yahweh and 
if you take that word and you translate it into Greek, you get the, the term ego I me or I am. So whenever you see that language, that is the same language referring back to the I am of Exodus 3.14 where God is declaring that he is Yahweh. I am. And I am means that he's self-existent, self-sustaining. Uh, self he's of himself. That's the aseity of God. There was never a time where God was not. He's always been. He is I am. He's he, he's immutable in all of his attributes. He is he is forever the same. He he has been from everlasting to everlasting. Before the earth, God was here. Before the earth, God was. There never was a time that he was not. So when someone says, well, where did God from? God come from? Who made God? He is. That's how he can say, I am. There's no one like me. There, I'm not like this. I'm not like this. I am. And this is what he's saying here. He says, unless you believe ego I me, I am, I am Yahweh, I'm God, you'll die in your sin. And they go and they want to kill him. And we see this a little bit later as well. Uh, in, in the chapter 8, that he says before Abraham was I am. And they absolutely lose their minds and they try to kill him. He says this. He, he, he calls them out, um, says that they're children of the devil um, and, and they, they don't like this. It goes a little bit farther down and it says, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, verse 56, and he saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not 50 years old yet, and you have seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, Ego I me, I am. So just like we heard in the earlier, unless you believe Ego I me, you'll die in your sin. Unless you believe that I am God, that's referencing all the way back to the, the burning bush, Exodus 3.14. Who's, who's sending me is what Moses is asking. He says, I am. That translates again into ego I me in the Greek. And this is where he says, unless you believe ego I me, I am God, I am Yahweh, you'll die in your sin. In verse 24 of John 8. And here he comes and he says, truly I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Or ego I me, I am. I've always been. You know, let me just take a little side note here real quick. One of my favorite psalms in the Bible, it's the oldest psalm in the Bible. Um, you know, we see a lot of these psalms written by David and, and, different, and different individuals. But Psalm 90 uh, was a psalm of Moses, a prayer of Moses, which dates back a long time, right? Here's what it says. It says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. And listen to this term. Before the mountains were born, or you gave birth to the earth, in the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Before there was an earth, you were God. I am. Before there was any mountain, you were. You have divine, immutable aseity. You have always been. You are of yourself. And that's what he's claiming here. And it says, therefore, they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. You see what's happening here? This hatred they had for Joseph because of what is going on, it is magnified in Christ. Jesus was the shepherd sent by the Father with this message that, that he is God. He's the only way to salvation. And every knee would bow to him. And they hated him. 
and they tried to kill him repeatedly. And we even see this one more uh, as Lazarus has just been raised from the dead. Um, we see this account. And uh, let's see where it's at. Here it is in John 11, 47 through 43. Uh, it goes on here. They don't like what's going on. And in verse 53, it says, From that day on, they planned to kill him. So again, just for time's sake, there's a lot in here in the Bible. They plan to kill him. They, and now we come to Joseph. In this section, it says they planned to kill him. They wanted to kill him. They hated him even more. Um, and that's how the story starts to, to parallel. Um, in verse 18, we see this. They plotted to put him to death. That was their plan. It says when they saw him from a distance and, and before he came close to them, they plotted against him to put him to death. But then something amazing happens is this, and this is the part of the story that we m mostly know, and you know, uh, this is kind of the well-known part of the story, is that they stripped him of this very colored tunic. Uh, in verse 23, we see this. Um, they're wanting to kill him, and, and initially their plan is, Reuben says in verse 22, shed no blood, throw him into the pit that is in the wilderness, but do not lay hands on him, that he might rescue him out of, the hand, of their hands to restore him to his father. They, they, that's what his rebuttal is because in the, in the verses above what they wanted to do was they said let us kill him throw him into one of the pits and we will say a wild beast devoured him let's see what he comes of his dreams and then so you see what this plan is they want to kill him let's, let's, let's throw him into this pit say that the wild beast kill him then Reuben comes and says hey let's shed no blood uh, let's just throw him in this pit um, but don't lay a hand on him and then it says in verse 23 so it came about when Joseph reached his brothers, they stripped Joseph of his tunic, his very colored tunic, that was on him. And then they threw him in the pit. Now let's talk about this, this very colored tunic, or this, this robe, many colors, however you want to say it. it. It was stripped from him. Now remember that Joseph is pointing to Jesus. And here's what we're going to see. We're going to take this all the way to the to the New Testament into a couple different places, and and you'll see the similarities. You may have already you can already start to pick up on some of these. In John chapter 19, in verse 23, it says this. This is that uh, it's at the crucifixion. Um, this is where King of the Jews is written all over uh, the top of uh, the top of Jesus. Um, they wanted the pilot to not write that on there. He says, you know, he says, I am, I'm not going to change it. I'm going to, I've written what I've written. He knew that he was the king of the Jews. He says in verse 23, then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his outer garment and made four parts, a part to every soldier and also the tunic. Now the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece. So they said one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to decide whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture that said they divided my outer garments among them and my clothing they cast for lots. And that's Psalm twenty-two, eighteen. So you see that Jesus is stripped of his robe. Now Jesus has a seamless tunic here, which is meaning that it is, it is, uh, it is supernatural. It is of uh, divine nature. It is uh, perfect. There is no flaw in it. This is the this is the the robe of God. It is seamless. But it was stripped of him, and just like Joseph had his robe stripped. And then you're going to see the sequence of events here because 
They're going to strip Joseph of his tunic and then put blood on it. Jesus is going to be stripped of his robe and he's going to shed the blood on the cross. The sequential events uh, is happening here. It, it's something that we have to take note of. And then we also see another account of this in Matthew 27 of Jesus, his robe being stripped of him. Matthew 27, in verse 28, it says this. It says, I'll go to verse 27. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole Roman cohort around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. So we see that as Joseph is having his tunic and his robe stripped, Jesus is having his stripped as well. This is a foreshadowing of what's going to happen. You know, we start to see the story of Joseph and you can just see how all these things are pointing to what Christ is going to do. It's pointing to a greater one that is going to come. And then the story continues and we see this next little piece of information that is mind-blowing. Judah, in verse 26, says, Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it for us to kill our brother and cover up his blood? So now there's this guy named Judah who becomes greedy. And he has the idea, in verse 28, here's his idea. It says, Then some Midianite traders passed by. So they pulled him up and lifted uh, yeah, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm very sorry. Let's go back to 27. Come and let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. For he is our brother, our own flesh. His brothers listen to him. So now we have this Judah who is becoming greedy, wants to sell his brother. They've stripped him of his robe. They wants to sell his brother for a profit. And here's what's interesting that we see in verse 28. Then some Midianite traders passed by, so they pulled him up and lifted Joseph out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. Thus they brought Joseph into Egypt. Do you see what just happened? This whole thing is pointing to something else that's going to happen. So Judah was the one. Ironic, right? It, like It's just a coincidence that Judah is the one who recommended selling Joseph. Judah, in the Hebrew, when it is translated into the Greek, translates into a name that we may be familiar with, and that name is Judas. Right? How, how amazing is that? That Judah here, translated into the Greek, is Judas. And Judah says, let's sell Joseph. For 20 pieces of silver. And Judas in the New Testament sells Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. That's mind-blowing to me. That you, you see it's just these shadows of the Old Testament. It is, as this is going on, we read this and we're like, you know, we just gloss over him. But this is pointing to Christ. This is pointing to Jesus. This is pointing that there would be one come that would, would come that would be hated and that, that, that he would be sold and his robe would be stripped and, and all these things would happen. This is pointing to Jesus. There's more to this story. And the Bible is better than what we've made it. And it's no coincidence that Judah, which is translated to Judas, both are selling here for silver. 
It's amazing. And then what happens next is is equally as equally as amazing. In verse um, twenty nine, it says, "Now Reuben returned to the pit, and behold, Joseph was not in the pit, so he tore his garments." He returned to his brothers and said, The boy is not there. As for me, where am I to go? So they took Joseph's tunic and slaughtered a male goat and dipped the tunic in the blood. And then they sent the very colored tunic and brought it to the father and said, We found this. Please examine it to see whether it's your son's tunic or not. If you watched the first video, then you know that we talked a little bit about this. That this, the importance of a goat is critical in understanding this because in Leviticus 16, as the high priest on the Day of Atonement to make atonement and propitiation for the, the sin of the people, they would sacrifice a goat. They would, they would have one that would be a scapegoat that they would put their hands on. They would confess their sins and he would escape and he would, it would be symbolic of taking their sins away from them. But, but there would be one goat that would be slaughtered and, and die and that blood of that goat would be sprinkled on the mercy seat, on the Ark of the Covenant, um, to make atonement for the sin of the people. And First Peter also tells us that, that, that we see that that symbolic act, that it was a real act back in then, but it was pointing to something greater. It was pointing to Christ. And they would take this goat blood and they would sprinkle it on the mercy seat for the atonement of sin. And we see this in First Peter chapter 1. It says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered through Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. So what is happening here in the Old Testament, the goat is slaughtered to make a, a, appeasement, for make atonement for sin. They would take the blood of the goat and they would sprinkle it on the mercy seat and that would, that would satisfy uh, the wrath of God at that time. It would satisfy and appease God at that time uh, and the sin would be forgiven. It would be atoned for. So, And then we go to the New Testament and that same sprinkling is happening into um, the believer's lives. So it's a beautiful thing that's happening. And here we see that not only did they take Joseph's tunic off, but then they sprinkled it and dipped it in goat's blood. And then they presented it to the Father. And, and this is what's happening with Christ, right? So they strip his robe, and then he's going to go to the cross. And just as the goat was slaughtered in Leviticus 16 to make atonement for the sin of the people, Jesus, the true sacrifice, would bleed and make atonement for those who would believe in him. So you, you see the sequence of events. The, the robe is stripped, and then the blood is applied, and then presented to the Father. Jesus' robe is stripped of him. He is made uh, making sacrifice on the cross. The blood is uh, flowing down as an atonement. Uh, that blood is sprinkled on the hearts of believers, is what First Peter says. And then it's it's you know presented to the Father. It, it appeased the Father. This sacrifice was pleasing to the Father. It was accepted by the Father, and we know it was because he was resurrected from the grave. And we know that uh, the wages of sin is death, and, and, and death causes sin, and without sin there is no death. And that's why it says in Acts that, that the grave, it was impossible to hold him because he was sinless. He took on our sin, but he was sinless. 
And that's how we know the sacrifice was accepted. The sacrifice was presented to the Father, and it was accepted. And this is what's going on here in Joseph. It's no coincidence that Judah's selling him for silver. It's no coincidence the robe has been stripped. And it's no coincidence that it is dipped in the blood of a goat, which is what is shown in the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16, which would then be a shadow for what Christ would do on the cross. And it would be presented to the Father, just like the tunic was presented here to the Father. And we know that sacrifice was accepted to God the Father. It's, it's really beautiful here how this whole thing is, is going and um, pointing to Jesus. So that's, that's the flow of chapter 37. Then, then we'll skip ahead a little bit to chapter 39. Um, this is where Joseph, you know, Joseph has been sold into slavery, and he just happens by coincidence to land in Egypt. You know, this whole thing is being planned by God. It is being ordained by God, and they would be in Egypt, and then Moses would lead them out of bondage, and all this is setting up to that. But he is taken into the, bought by uh, uh, Egyptian officer Pharaoh named Potiphar. He's taken into the house. He gains uh, credibility. He, he rises to the point of being able to be in charge of all of his house. Um, and then during that time, Potiphar's wife um, is tempting him um, to come and lay with her. Uh, he, he's being tempted, but he continuously refuses. He is continually uh, resisting sin. He is, uh, he is doing that, and then uh, she's had enough of it one day when she has tempted him and called him in. He takes off fleeing. She grabs a piece of his garment. Um, and then she accuses him of being there, and uh, he gets thrown in, in prison for two years. Uh, and what we can see in this is that he was tempted here, but he did not sin. He did not cave to that temptation. And we know that there's a greater one. In, in Hebrews chapter 4, and we see this in verse 15, it says that the reason he can be our high priest and the reason that he can atone for our sin and, and we can have the righteous requirement of the law, like Romans 8 says, is because he lived a sinless life. He tells us in Hebrews 4 verse 15 that he is the, the high priest that we can go to, and then he gives us the reason why. Just as Joseph was tempted but without sin here, Jesus says this, For we do not have a high priest who cannot... For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who was tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. So he is falsely accused here. He's without sin. He's falsely accused, and he gets thrown in prison. And we know that Jesus is falsely accused because there was no sin ever in him. And and we know that as he's standing before the, 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 the tribunal there, as he's standing before uh, a trial, we know that Pilate says, I find no fault in him because he was innocent. So here is Joseph being falsely accused and being imprisoned. And Jesus is falsely accused and put to death. And so we see some similarities there. Tempted, both without sin in this case. Jesus was never uh, one to fail. He was always without sin, both falsely accused. Uh, and then he gets put in prison which is ironic here. And, and what's amazing here is that he's in prison for two years, but then we see some of the people that he's with. And I believe that this is also foreshadowing what is going to happen in, in, in Jesus' life. And the first thing I want to make note of is that he's in prison here, and we have, we have two criminals that are mentioned. And as he's beginning to give these dreams, he's, he's going to interpret dreams for two of these criminals, and one, his interpretation is going to lead him into freedom. And one is going to be death. 
and you see that as Christ is on the cross, as he is taking this condemnation and punishment for our sin, um, as he is, has been falsely accused to get to this point, that he's in between two criminals as well. As, as Joseph is in, in prison between two criminals, Christ is in between two criminals. One will go free and one will be condemned to die which I think is, is also a foreshadowing of what is to come. But I think it goes much deeper than that, and I'll tell you why. Um, we won't go through the whole chapter, but in verse 9, in verse 16, we have some clues here of, of who is with him. What is the profession of those that are in prison with him here? And we see the first one in chapter uh, 40, verse 9. One was a chief cupbearer, and in verse 16, one was a chief baker. So we have one that was in charge of the cup and the wine, and we have one that was in charge of the bread and baking. And again, we go back to the first video, and we know that David rode in on a donkey, and he had bread and wine. And we talked about how the bread and wine represents the body and blood of Jesus that was broken and shed for the remission of sin and for the new covenant. When Jesus is there at the Last Supper, that's what he says. He takes the bread and he breaks the bread. And he says, take eat, this is my body, you do it in remembrance of me. He takes the drink, the cup, and he says, this is, my, this is the sign of the new covenant, this is my blood. You know, take it and drink it. And as you do, do it in remembrance of me. Um, this is what we do with communion. And, and we know that this is what this is pointing to. It's no coincidence that one is uh, the cup bearer representing the wine, and one is a baker representing the body, the bread of Christ. That his blood would be shed, the cup bearer, and he would take the cup of wrath. Remember when he's in the garden, he says, you know, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. But nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And Jesus drinks the cup of wrath on our behalf. So we have the, the cup bearer here representing the wrath that he took, the cup of wrath, but it also represents the blood that was shed for the new covenant. And then we have the baker, which represents the sinless body of Christ that will die on a cross for our sin. That's how we're reconciled by the body and the blood that was broken and shed. So that's amazing. Not only could it represent the two criminals, one going free, one and dying, but also it's representing the bread and the wine of the new covenant um, that we see here. And then we go down to verse 19, which is even more amazing that we know that in the, 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 the um, feast of, the feast of unleavened bread, that bread represents the sinless body of Christ. Uh, we know that the bread in the tabernacle, uh, that was also unleavened bread, which means without sin is what that represents. And it, ha it would have, you know, uh, stripe marks in it. And it would represent the stripes that Jesus would take on the cross by stripes were healed, is what Isaiah 53 says. And we see that his body will be lifted up on a cross. We know that his body will be broken for us. And, and Joseph gives the interpretation of the, the cupbearer, and he says, you're, you're going to go free, you're going to live. You'll, you'll be reinstated, it'll be okay. But verse 19 gives a different story to the, cup, uh, the chief baker. And, and actually, verse 18, it says this. Then Joseph answered and said, this is its interpretation. So he's just given him this dream, the baker has. And here's the interpretation of the dream. Within three more days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from you. And listen to this. We, we mentioned that Christ's sinless body is the unleavened bread. It's what it represents, and it was broken on a cross for us. It says, in three days, 
Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and hang you on a tree. I mean, come on, right? I mean, this is, there's so much more to this story. Not only is the cup bare and the wrath of God and the blood that was shed, now we have the baker and the sinless unleavened bread uh, representing the body of Christ broken on a cross. And he says in three days, you are going to hang on a tree. And then we go and we know what Jesus did for us. We read this in Galatians chapter 2. Chapter 3, I'm sorry. It says, Christ redeemed us in verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. And they were in prison for breaking the law, right? Joseph was in there for being falsely accused, but the other two had committed crimes. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become in a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. In order that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. He became a curse for us to set us free from the curse because cursed is everyone who hangs on the tree. And this chief baker, representing the body of Christ, is hanging on the tree. There's more to the story. It is pointing to Christ and what he would do for us on the cross. I want to mention this briefly. In Psalm 105, 17 through 19, the Bible tells us that Joseph suffered uh, severely. He was innocent in these cases. He suffered severely. But we also know Isaiah 53 says that no one suffered more than Christ. He was the suffering servant um, more than we can even imagine. And uh, so those are some similarities as well. But So we've worked our way um, to him being sold and the robe and the blood and presented to the Father and uh, tempted without sin um, and then falsely accused and being in prison uh, between two criminals, like Christ was between two criminals on the cross, and one uh, was a, a cupbearer and one was a baker, and we've talked about that. Uh, another interesting thing that as we continue to work through this is this, is that when Joseph became overseer uh, in, in the, the, the ranks here, he was 30 years old, and and we find that in Genesis 41, 46. And if we go back to last time as well through the video of David, we see that David was 30 years old when he became king of Israel. Now we have uh, Joseph being 30 years old when he became overseer. Um, and then we know that Jesus was 30 years old when he roughly began his ministry there. That's what we see. Joseph will get out of prison. He will become a ruler of Egypt. He will be head over uh, certain events. He'll be head over of handing out the distribution of the, the, the food there uh, when the uh, famine comes. And like I said, he was 30 years old when he became overseer of that. So very similar there, similarities on the ages of the two that we've already talked about. And then we come to the sort of the climax of everything. We come to what has happened. And we see what has happened is that this shepherd who was sent by the father to the brothers and they hated him because of his claims. Um, they hated him so bad that they wanted to kill him. Um, that he was then betrayed by Judah for pieces of silver. Um, his coat was taken from him. His coat was dipped in goat's blood, representing the atonement and mentioned in Leviticus 16. Um, 
And then we see that he was falsely accused, he was put in prison, he was between who he was. All this stuff is happening in Joseph's life. All these hardships and all this suffering and everything that is happening it is coming to a head. It's coming to a climax. It's coming to the point of how this is pointing to Christ and, and why he's doing this and why he's going through this. And, and the answer that we begin to see is in Genesis 45, 5. And we, we know that he has came up with this amazing strategy and he's had another vision uh, Pharaoh had and talking about how, how the famine was coming. They would have seven years of provision and seven years or seven years of abundance seven years of uh, famine and and talked about how Joseph had the idea to uh, you know save it up extra in the goods so they would have some in the hardship and he was put over distribution of the goods here almost like a prime minister of this time of this area and we, we know the story for time's sake we won't get into it but you know he he sees his brothers and you know there's this moment there where he doesn't reveal himself they don't recognize him they go back and forth and in verse 40, or chapter 45, verse 5, Joseph is dealing kindly with his brothers. Uh, he, he reveals who he is to them. And in verse 5, he says, Now do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. You, you sold me here, but don't be grieved because there was a reason for all of this. God sent me before you to preserve life. This is Jesus, that he was sent, and he was hated, and stripped of his robe, and beaten, and persecuted, and, and uh, slaughtered, and he, all the things that are happening here, is here, in this verse, it says, God sent me to preserve life. This is happening. We're going to later hear this statement in verse 20 of chapter 50. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good, to save lives, to preserve lives. Your evil, wicked heart did what you wanted to do. It was you wanted to do this, and you had no good intentions to do it. And, and as you were doing what you meant for evil, God was working it all out for good. I'm here to preserve lives. You, you hated me. You sold me. You, you didn't want anything to do with me. I've suffered. I've been falsely accused. I've been in prison. I've been stripped of my robe. Uh, all this is going on. But there's a purpose for all of that because all that has led me to here to the point where I can save your life. That is the story of Jesus. That he sent and he has went through all the suffering, all the persecution. He's the suffering servant. He, he has lived this life in a man of sorrows. And he's been falsely accused and he's been nailed to the cross. And he's suffered not only the physical pain, but the pain of the father turning his back. And, and all this has happened to preserve lives. And so what's happening in the story of Joseph, because there's more to the story. And the Bible is better than what we've made it. He was sent to preserve lives. We know in John 6 that the Bible tells us that Jesus came to do the will of the Father. And the will of the Father was that all that the Father has given to him will come to him. And he raises them up on the last day. He's come to be that life and to, to give them life and to preserve life. And what's ironic here is that if you remember the dream that caused the brothers to hate him was that he was going to 
being rulership and, and they were going to come and bow down to him and they hated him for that. But it didn't change the fact that it happened because it was a dream from God. And it says that they do and they come and they bow down to him and he had the authority and this is in Genesis 42, 6. And, you know, there are people that adamantly deny God and his deity. You know, the Bible says there's no one in Romans 1. It says that everyone knows there's God, but they suppress that knowledge. And they don't honor God as God but uh, or give him thanks, but uh, they become futile in their minds and their hearts have been darkened and God gives them over to the sin and they snowball into this rebellion and, and um, they suppress this knowledge. But they know there's a God. They, it's not a fact that they don't know there is a God because the Bible says he's, he's clearly made it evident to them. It's that they hate the God that they know does exist. So, so it's not an intellectual thing. that It's not an intellectual problem that they don't know he doesn't exist. It's that they hate that he does exist and they hate him. So it's a moral problem. But he has said that every knee is going to bow to him. We find this in Isaiah. We find this in, in Philippians 2, 9-11. That every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So they hated Joseph for it. But guess what? The reality is that it was going to happen because it was from God. And, and just as Jesus has said that, that every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess. Those who hate that and those who despise that and who would want to do everything they could to rid God of, of his Godship and it's still going to take place. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And the thing that they hated and denied actually happened here in this story and it's going to happen one day. Everyone will bow to King Jesus, which is foretold here in this. It's, it's a really beautiful picture. But what is amazing in this story as we close is we go to Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. And this is where the brothers come and they fall down before him and they ask for forgiveness. In verse 19 of chapter 50, Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, for I am in for am I in God's place? Am I not where God wanted me to be? Was this not God's sovereign plan? He said, As for you, you meant it for evil. There was no good in your heart. You meant it for evil. But the sovereign God of the universe has meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many to preserve many people alive you see what's happening the wicked acts of the brothers set the events into motion that would allow joseph to end in egypt and then it would allow him to go through the ranks and allow him to be in charge in distribution of the food Do you see what's happening? Is that all this has happened? Being sold, being betrayed, being falsely accused. And then we come to the point, after all that has happened, now he's in a position to save their life. This is what Jesus did. He was sent to, to preserve lives, to save lives. All the events 
led up to this event on the cross and what everyone in that time meant for evil. Pilate meant it for evil and Herod meant it for evil and the Jews meant it for evil. They all meant it for evil. Judas meant it for evil. Everything was evil that was going on. It was for the wickedness of their heart because they hated him. But God took the, the wicked thing, the things that they meant for evil, and God brought it into the most good thing ever, the, the greatest thing ever. Death on the cross of the, the, the one and only Savior of the world so that we could be saved, those who believe. They set the stage that would eventually lead to the result that would save their lives. And the people that were involved to get Jesus to the cross were just like these brothers in, the, in this story. They meant it for evil, but God, oh, he meant it for good, to save lives. And we see this in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4. I'm going to read these here. Acts chapter 2 says this in verse 23. This man, talking about Jesus, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. You see, they meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. But God raised him up again, putting it into the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. We talked about this briefly. It was impossible for him to be held because uh, the wages of sin is death. And it was impossible for him to hold him because the divine nature of the Logos and also the human nature of the, the Logos, they were without sin. So it was impossible for death to hold him. And that's why he was resurrected. And it was also resurrected for our justification to intercede on our behalf. And because God the Father was pleased and accepted the sacrifice. And then we go to the... Uh, Acts chapter 4 um, and Peter and John have been arrested and they either release, they come back um, and they're telling them all the things that have happened and, and they come up and they say this in chapter uh, chapter 4 verse 25 it says who by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of our father David your servant said why do the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise futile things the kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod, Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. It was from the creation of the world. It was the lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world. It was the it was the the predestined and pre-planned will of God that these men would work into their evil desires, but it would be ultimately done to do the good thing that God had wanted accomplished. And that good thing was to, to have his son die on the cross, to lay his life down for the sheep to save lives. And we see what is happening that Joseph's family now has to come to him and receive this food to live. They were the ones who started this whole thing and it all worked to get to this point. And now Joseph is in charge of their life. If Joseph doesn't give them food, then they die. They're at the mercy of Joseph. He is the one who is now 
distributing the food to live. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing. That he's the bread of life. And if we come and we partake of this bread of life, we will never hunger again. It's by his mercy and his grace that we're saved. As we come, as the, he, he calls the void, he calls to the sheep, the sheep come to him and we come. And we put our faith in him and, and we acknowledge that he is the I am, the ego I me. And we acknowledge he's the savior. We know that there's no other way of life. These brothers in this family and, and, and Jacob, they know that there's no other way to live. There's no other place that they can go. That life and death is here. And this is what is foretold in Jesus that there's only one name, there's only one way, there's only one true source of, of life, there's only one living water, there's only there's only one living bread. And they come and, and they're solely dependent on him handing this out to them by mercy and by grace. And Joseph does and they live. And you know, I believe that they had a heart of gratitude because of the mercy that he showed. I mean, think about it. He gives them the food to live. And we know that this is pointing to a greater food, the spiritual food that Christ would give. And the spiritual drink, as we see in John 4, the living water. And their hearts were thankful. I mean, right? He saved their lives. He preserved life, which is what he was sent for. I bet their attitudes were one of gratefulness and continuous thanks should have been and that should be our attitude as we come to the only one who can offer us this bread of life to live everything that happened to Joseph these key things that we're talking about are pointing to Jesus this is not about your God-sized dream this is not about stay strong when people hate your dreams, this is the gospel, and it's pointing to Jesus. There's more to the story. I'm so thankful that he came, and it was meant for evil by everyone at that cross, but it was meant for good because it saved me, and it saved all those who would believe. So there is more to the story of Joseph, and we hope you see the Bible is better than what we've made it. Um, so that's a wrap on Joseph. Uh, we'll continue to plug through on these and um, just continue to show us that the Old Testament fits with the New Testament. It's a, it's a shadow. It's pointing to Christ. Um, and that way we're not so terrified of it and we can start to make sense of it. So um, until the next time, we, we pray that you would go back and reread these stories, begin to see these, begin to meditate on these things. And really be in awe of the Word of God. So um, the Bible is so much better than what we've made it. Until next time, just remember that this, that there's more to the story. And we'll talk to you all real soon. Take care.